You're now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program! Hello, welcome to Sound of Sanity. I am Nathan. I am your humble and obedient host. We've got Ben Solzer. He is the P, who is a T of S. That's that's right. And why don't you introduce the O G? <laughs> He's the P, who's going to make an an acronym that will sound like something we don't mean. He's the pastor who's a master of sanity. <laughs> Here's the M of S. It's great. <laughs> ah, you almost fell into my trap. <laughs> How you doing, boys? Oh, just fine. How are you? I'm doing well. Good. Time for another exciting episode <laughs> of Sound of Sanity. Now, this episode begins with a terrible thing that's happened, which is emails and messages got lost in our Sanityville servers for months. That is true, yeah. And so, six months or longer. Yeah. So, without going into what that is exactly, what I'm saying is people have tried to contact us through a forum and they've got hundreds of emails all at once. Yes. That came through from like anywhere from yesterday to six months ago. And some of them were like, thank you for doing this wonderful thing. And we're like, we don't remember what the wonderful thing is, but you're welcome. And some of them were like, ah, that was so stupid what you said. And we're like, yeah, we said that. Six months ago, and some of them I mean, were everything in between. Some of them were book orders. Anyway, it was a national tragedy that that happened. But I want to talk. I want to address a certain email that got lost in the system, which is from our good friend Justice. What's up, Justice? He's written to us before. He is a fan of our creative projects, such as Chip and Lance or The Ville. Which, if you like, pre- yeah, I remember him. He's on a quest to locate Sanityville in real life. Yes, he actually followed, he actually figured out, because there's an episode where Ollie drives from the Ville to, I believe, Columbus, where Pastor Stu has set up shop, and so he figured out, like, the mileage of how far Ollie had gone and tried to reverse engineer a solution as to exactly where Sanityville is located. And here's the thing, Justice, we know the answer. I know the answer to where Sanityville, I know exactly where it is. But you will never figure it out, my friend. You can have your little cork boards and your strings and everything that you have. Mostly just cork board and string, I think. But you will never crack. We're too smart for you, man. We're one step ahead. You can't do it. (laughs) Nope. You might think like a, a tantalizing little whiff of a clue is in your periphery, but you turn... And it's not there. <laughs> You'll never figure it out. But one thing that he will figure out, Justin, or Justin, sorry, just, sorry, Justice. Justice asked, because he likes the Ville and Chip and Lance, which by the way, if you don't know what those are, those are creative storytelling. How, how would you describe these things? The, it was a, the, Both of them are spinoffs from this very show, which if you dig into the archives, you will find out used to have little comedy skits and stuff. Those characters developed into sort of fully fleshed three-dimensional characters and ended up generating two other shows, one of which was called The Ville, which is a serialized tragic comedy about the citizens of The Ville. And it's got an octopus. It's got an evil pastor. It's got all kinds of stuff. 
possums. Possums. Yes. And then the other one is a more of a friendly children's show called Chip and Lance. And how would you describe that show, gentlemen? Oh, Chip and Lance is a really fun sort of fantasy kids show that has a hilarious guy named Chip in it and a straight man named Lance who has to deal with his buddy's exasperating insanity. But it's charming insanity. It's it's heartwarming insanity. It's insanity with a moral point, I dare say. The moral point, yeah. And there's there's also possums in that one. There's possums in that one too. They're chips possums. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of them is named Disease Face. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> He's the real hero of the show, if we're being honest. Yeah. So these shows are both kind of like Adventures in Odyssey meets dot dot dot. Chip and Lance is more like Adventures <laughs> in Odyssey meets dot 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 because it is in fact a children's show. But it's got adventure and bad guys and monsters and you know everything that you'd want to have in your your children's show i mean if you had to say something i guess you'd say the last season was chip and lance meets harry potter but that's right that's a you know the dot blank meets blank is a difficult formula to do well so i don't want you to hold (laughs) us to it i don't want you to be like harry potter's not nearly as good as this (laughs) i don't want to get all those complaints yeah poor rolling she's been through enough yeah poor she doesn't need her beloved little piece of IP compared to something like Chip and Lance. Right, right, right. Some, some, somebody's fri- children's refrigerator drawings don't need to be compared to the Mona Lisa. Come on. Come on. So that's Chip and Lance. That's The Ville. And they're, they're both shows that we have a lot of fun doing. Justice is a fan of those shows. And I encourage you to listen to those shows if you have not listened to them, because you can be a fan of them too. But Justice was wondering about our creative process. And so I thought we could do a fun little episode where we talked about the creative process, which sounded a lot more appealing to me than writing a long email describing in words our creative process. I thought verbal words would be a nice way. So, guys, what is our creative process for writing an hour-long comedy drama kind of show or a half-an-hour-long children's adventures in Odyssey type thing? Well, when it comes to the Ville, we have to reverse engineer quite a bit of it, right? So we have to figure out where we want to head in yep. a season. Uh, we, we need to always keep in mind, we start with where we want the show to go. Mm-hmm. And then we have to reverse engineer that to where we want this season to go. And then once we have that, and we can always throw on the board, well, we definitely want this to happen. Right. No matter what. Because mm-hmm. that would just be, this is just a really fun idea or exciting idea or something that makes sense for this character. We want to see this happen for this character. Okay, so well, that's got to be on the board too. And it it sort of starts on that level, I think, kind of like a jigsaw puzzle where it's like, okay, we know a couple of things about where we want to end and we know a couple of things we want to have happen along the way. So how do we make all of that work and structure a season that helps advance the story of Erica and Ricky and Chip and and Lance Lance and Pastor Stu for that matter. And then once you get into, so then you can have, but even there, like, okay, that's where it is now, but that's not how it started. So it is an evolving process too, but season two, season three, and now season four, season four is mapped out. We know what season th- we're going into season three. Aren't oh, we? I'm sorry. Yeah. Season, well, I was thinking it was a long spread. season two, a, a and season two B. Yeah. We could call it season four and perhaps we should, but, but anyhow, yes. season two was mapped out ahead of time and mm-hmm. the episodes all had mm-hmm. a progression and a logic and in the writing of it, it ended up changing quite a bit. Because mm-hmm. you get into things and it's like, okay, well, your ideas and your plans, they made sense 
before you got started writing, but then in the process of writing, you're dealing with characters and characters tend to have sort of a mind of their own and yeah, work themselves out and leave the story in a different place than you thought. I would, I would say it, 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 mm-hmm. it feels like one of two things. Number one, it can have that kind of feeling of, oh, this character just doesn't want to do that. Like she's doing something else right now. So I guess I have to change and go along with her. And you have to be sensitive to that when you're writing. You have to actually be alive enough to your own characters that you can't force things because you want them that way. There's part mm-hmm. of it. That's discovery. Right, right. There is that there's also it, the, it, you want to speak more mechanically and with less creative magic. You could say, well, I don't know how to make that play this way. So I thought I was going to be able to put these two characters in a room and they were going to get to from point A to point B. But actually as I try and write it, it's not working, which means I need to go from A to C over here in order to get back to B. And so what am I going to do? I guess that changes this here. And that's a lot of the process of, of just figuring these things out. I mean, I guess if we're breaking an episode, what we do is what we have the general idea of what the episode, this is the episode where Bob goes to the store and gets gunned down by a terrorist. That's, that's what we want. That's the story that we want to tell. And we know that much. And we've got a really great scene where Bob sacrifices himself to the terror. Like we have a couple of ideas for, we've got some great lines even for that scene mm-hmm. where we know we want Bob's final, what we want Bob's final words to be. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was all part of like, when we were hatching this out, we were hashing it out. Like we know that we want Bob to pay off this thing that was said two episodes earlier mm-hmm. with his final line as he goes to fall on the grenade and sacrifice himself. Right. Okay. So this is the scene we want to get to. This is the payoff. This is the, the climax. This is the catharsis. These are the emotional beats we want to hit. And so, and the terrorist is the way to that. Right. At least so we think coming into the episode. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then we have to think, so we have like a bunch of ideas for what's going to happen. But then we have to start asking all the kind of practical questions like, okay, Bob's going to go to the store. Like we need him to be at the store when the terrorist attack happens. Why is Bob going to the store? What's dramatically interesting about Bob going to the store? What does it mean for the character that he would go to this store? Because what you don't want to do is just say, ah, I'll figure that out when I'm writing it. Because what you'll find is you're stuck with a bunch of lifeless, dramatically inert crap that you can't make work because you're like, well... There's no reason for Bob There's to be no, going to yeah, the store. Yeah, he wouldn't go to the store. The only store. reason for Bob to be at the store is so that he can get blown up by a terrorist in a cathartic way. Right. And the best piece of advice, the, I'd give two pieces of advice. Number one, outline. You can always change it later, but it's good to have something to throw away. So I think a, a lot of young people, when they're trying to be creative, they just want to let the muse speak through them and they want to be creative and stuff like that. And that's fine, but it always helps to have a plan with anything that you're trying to do. And I like to have a very detailed plan, particularly because my brain doesn't work structurally. I think there's some people that are just naturally well-structured in the way that they think. And so they don't need as much of a plan. But for me, it's like I can write the snatches of great dialogue or do the character beats, but it's like I'm going to get lost in what the story is and what it's actually about if I don't have a really solid roadmap as I go about actually writing the darn thing. So number one is to have a plan like A, B, C, D, Bob goes to the store. And the best piece of advice, number two, about how to make that compelling 
is a piece of advice that I think has been spread most famously on the internet by the South Park guys doing a little talk where they talk about this. But it's an old piece of screenwriting advice, I think, maybe from Sid Field's famous screenwriting. I, I don't know where it originates. It's as old as the hills, ultimately. But the way to think about it is this. If the beats, so the beats of your story are the individual things that happen. Bob's going to go to the store. He's going to have an encounter with the bag check lady. The terrorists are going to burst in. They're going to round everybody. You have these different beats. If you can put the word and in between those beats, Bob goes to the store and he buys groceries and terrorists come, then you have a dramatically lifeless scene. If you can put the words but or therefore, if you can establish dramatic causality, then you have a story. I went to the store is not a story. I ran out of milk. Therefore, I went to the store, but, but terrorists attacked. That's a story. It's the grammar of scenes. That's a grammar of how you put of scenes and how you put them together and even of the internal logic of the conflict in the individual scenes. He wants to buy milk, but the bag check lady is not being helpful. Is is that's a scene. He wants to buy milk and the bag check lady tells him where to buy milk. Okay, why why am I watching this? But and therefore always always intrinsically answer the question of why you're listening to this, why you're watching this, why you're reading this. Because, but, and therefore indicate conflict. Right. Right. They indicate tension of some kind. They indicate alternatives. Right. And drama is about conflict, as we know, all the, that goes all the way back to Aristotle's poetics and the Greeks. And like, that's story is conflict mm-hmm. and conflict is story. You can't just tell a story about, and this is, if you've ever talked to someone who's a boring storyteller, it's because their stories lack conflict. They're like, I went to the store and I got some flour. And what store was it? It was Schnucks. And you're like, why are you telling me this? Well, they're telling you this because they're a narcissist and they think everything that happens to them is intrinsically interesting. Yep. But actually somebody who loves you and cares about your interest level is only going to tell you stories that have intrinsic interest. And that intrinsic interest is going to come from conflict and from buts and from therefores. Like, I went to the store, but... We were attacked by terrorists. That would be a really, really interesting story. And this is why, like, when you see, like, the dramatic comedic interpretations of kids telling stories, they're all strung together, actually, with ants. Mm-hmm. And I went to the to the mall and this and then and this and then this and then this and then this, this. And now I'm reaching for something else about me. But it's all, that's how it's told. Yeah, and at a certain point, if you love your kids when they get old enough, you actually tell them like that's not interesting like yeah. th- there has to be a point and there has to be a conflict to the story and if you can add a little dialogue then it'll it'll be an even better anecdote and and a punchline a punchline goes a long way young three-year-old kid that i'm helping right now mm. but that's what you want in an outline you want a string of causality now it's complicated because you'll have multiple characters bouncing off of each other it's not always going to be Luke Skywalker goes here and then he does this and then, but generally you're going to have one main protagonist and they need to have a series of, of challenges. And I know there's people listening who are like, man, this is the most boring advice ever. Like this this is, this just feels so obvious and so easy. It's the most difficult thing in the world. It's where Uh you should, it's where you will spend all your time if you're wise. And it's where you should spend all your time because if you can build a good engine, then you can get all the way to the end of the story and it will carry you there. 
if you don't have a good engine, then it doesn't matter how good the air conditioning is and how well the windows work. And in other words, story is king. If you're not telling an interesting story, it doesn't matter how good the dialogue is. It doesn't matter how good the character beats are. It doesn't matter how observant you are about human nature. It doesn't matter how beautiful your dialogue or your prose or whatever. How funny your jokes are. How funny people won't care. And you'll notice this. Like, think about your favorite comedies. They have plots. Why do they have plots? That's because plots actually carry you through and maintain your interests. I mean, does it really matter? Don't you just want to see Bill Murray being a cut up? Does it really matter what, you know, whether Gozer's going to come this way? Whether, <clears throat> whether Weird Al's going to be able to buy that TV station after all? Right. So a lot, a lot of times they'll have very stupid, obvious plots, but it's, <laughs> you have to have something to hang well, even the jokes on. And in, in even a, a good stand-up routine. Mm-hmm. actually has a plot. It has a structure. It has its own setups and payoffs. How many uh, good stand-up routines have you watched where the final punchline is actually a payoff of something that was set up by other jokes? Like an hour ago. An hour ago that they made you forget about until they pulled it all together at the mm-hmm. end, right? There's real structure, and that structure <laughs> is a plot-oriented. Tra- it may not be a story, but it is a pl- a plot oriented structure with a beginning, a middle, and an end set up, climax, payoff. Right. And if people are comedy nerds, which I don't know how many people that are comedy nerds actually listen to our podcast, but they might be thinking, what about Dangerfield? He just, I don't give a respect. He tells a bunch of jokes. What about Stephen Wright? What about people who just tell jokes with no connective tissue? Well, the thing about those people is there's about three of them that have ever existed and they're geniuses. You- and they exist in a context where part of the joke is the way they upset your expectations set by right. every, like, like Stephen Wright's a great example of like he exists as an insane genius in a context mm-hmm. that allows him to exist and be hilarious. And that's also accepting the premise, which I don't think we actually do that Stephen Wright isn't structuring his routine. Of course he is. Of course his right. jokes you might not be able to exactly figure out what the build is, but he's probably worried a great deal about the order that they go in, where the big laughs are placed, the way that certain ideas build on other sorts of ideas. Like he's actually not just pulling a bunch of three by fives out of filing cabinet and just reading them in any given order. And neither, neither is a danger field. Neither are any of those old hacky, you know, take my wife, please joke comedians. They've all got, a rhythm of a build. Sometimes when it's done well, when it's done artfully, it's almost invisible. And that's part of what you want. You actually don't want people to be thinking about plot. Oh, that's an interesting plot. If people are thinking that, it's probably because you're boring and stupid. <laughs> that's right. They have the same sort of stagecraft that a good magician has, right? Like they're really good at the sleight of hand. They're really good at misdirection. They're really good at leading you down one path or while making you think you're going down another. Right. You probably watched a movie, if you've watched enough movies where... Mm-hmm. You see the stagecraft. You're like, oh, Mel Gibson is showing that he can get out of a straitjacket because at some point later, the bad guys are definitely going to. James, Bond, James Bond is the ultimate offender of this. Like, well, 007, here's your three gadgets that do this. And it's like, <laughs> gee, it's gee, really wonder, random, but it's possible it may come in handy. Yeah. Gee, I wonder if he's going to have an exact use for an acid pen or a. <laughs> and, and that's also part of the fun is James, is James Bond fun. is doing it with a wink. Like, of course, he's going to have a use for an acid pen. Um, <laughs> what's it going to be, though? It's what's like it going to be? Hitchcock's bomb under the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's got yeah, that acid yeah, yeah. pen in his pocket. That can be done artfully as well. Yeah, that's right. right. When it's done well, it's it, it both fulfills and 
subverts your expectations. Like, you know, people probably know the phrase Chekhov's gun. Chekhov, the playwright, says, said, or at least famously was reputed to say, if you have a gun on the mantelpiece in Act 1, it should go off by Act, Act 3. And that's true. You don't want to have the gun not go off, but who and how and when it goes off should all be a surprise. And that's part of the art and that's part of the fun. And that's really where you want to spend a bunch of your time. So I think if, if anyone was interested in our humble little creative process, they might be shocked by how much of it is that kind of, well, what order does this go in? And if she does this here, then why would he do this here? And Mm -hmm. just getting that stuff right. And then coming out with, oh, we thought that this had a logic and made character sense, but I don't actually believe that that's... Like Bob would not go to the store right now. He's not the kind of character that I don't really think that Bob would do that. He's Mm -hmm. obviously just going to the store because we need him to run into the terrorists and you can feel it. We put it all together. We made it all sort of put all the elbow greasing to trying to make it all make sense, have the scenes and everything put together. And then you step back and you're like, eh, I don't, I don't actually believe that it, he, he even went to the store. I don't believe what's it. An, what's an example. Can we pull an example of a scene that like from our stuff or yeah, from, uh, that we've I'm actually sure there's done that too. Yeah, just trashed. Like, I mean, we've trashed so <laughs> we've much. Well, Storylines. I know. Um, yeah, we have. Well, what's an example. It happens all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like hard to put your, Yep. Maybe, maybe if we went through, I mean, <laughs> we could probably just pick any episode. Mm-hmm. And then if we if we went back in our minds to that episode, we could probably come up with any number of examples. Of- uh, I'll, I'll give you the perfect example. It's the biggest example from, it's the thing that kickstarted our whole show, actually. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. So the episode Someone Special, which is the premiere, ep- the original, the first episode of The Ville, is an episode about a young lady being seduced by a very evil youth pastor. Sounds like a barrel of laughs, huh? It is. It's good. You should listen to it. But the thing about it was we were not interested in having her actually lose her virtue, virtue through three or four drafts of the script. The The hero showed up at the end and gave the pastor a good tongue lashing. And Well, that the, even the point of that episode, so the way that that whole thing worked is we would have different style episodes. And when we had an episode where we just wanted to teach about something or talk about something that wasn't like in the news, we would develop a story about it. And this one was actually supposed to be about death. Dealing with grief and stuff. And grief, right? But we had already with these little parody characters, we had written big backstories for all of them and we knew their relationships to each other. And we had all kinds of cheat sheets and stuff like that. So the Popcorn Coalition existed in a bubble because it was a great way to mock the Gospel Coalition and their take on movies. But, you know, Ricky, we always knew, was being creeped on by Pastor Stu. Right. And that was just part of it. And we just wanted to have, if we were going to have any kind of characters, even parody characters, we wanted to develop enough about them of interest so that we felt like we could they could be distinguishable instead of all just kind of becoming the same thing or taking on the same kind of voice. Rapid fire characters, Chip Lance and Stone Huntington were just three guys. Just a kind of a Rush Limbaugh mm-hmm. parody. To start yeah. With. And, but then we, they had their own backstories too. And so when it came to, okay, well in this episode, Ricky's grandfather died and we're going to do an episode about dealing with grief and it just took on a life of its own with the the youth pastor showing up to take advantage of the situation. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, we we wanted to keep it about grief. When we wanted to keep it so that Ricky stayed safe. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I don't think it even crossed our minds. We're just like, well, of course, we're not going to have our character end up getting seduced at the end. Like that's just oh, how could we do that? But we wrote several drafts of the script. I think we even had people in to record the whole episode. Yeah, I'm actually I actually remember right. it now. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, we, we recorded the dumb. We recorded oh, the whole yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. We got done. You left for something. Yeah, that's right. And Nathan and I sat there and we're just like- <sighs> This ending sucks. It's not it's working. It's not right. This is not right. And we looked at each other. Well, first we beat our heads against, as you do, how can we set- This, this girl actually doesn't seem that great. Like, we like her. We want her to- survive this ordeal but it really feels like she'd give herself to the youth pastor given everything that we have to work with so how do we make it inevitable that she doesn't and we yeah. beat our heads against it forever and then we it both came to us at the same time we looked at each other like yes. oh of course she's got to go home with us. she doesn't she doesn't she she's, just doesn't that's just not who she is up until this point and how this all works out she goes home with him and let's not pretend like pastor stew's a nobody either we can't neuter him like he's he's a powerful villain and so and then we had like a story that had no resolution. It was like, okay, well, I guess we ought to finish this story and keep working it out. And right. so, but then we also were like, okay, we're working with, like part of why Ricky had to go home with Stu is because we're working with a whole world of backstory that none of, nobody in our audience is working with. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, how do we construct enough context to mm-hmm. help everybody understand all the pieces on the table and how they relate to one another? Because we knew that Chip and Erica McGre- uh, uh, Chip and Erica were brother and sister, and we knew that Ricky was Erica's daughter, and we knew that uh-huh. all this other stuff, mm-hmm. right? And we knew why Chip was obsessed with gold and kind of like busted up and broken. And we knew that there's a whole reality to Pastor Stu that ran deep. How do we set all that up? Mm. And also in a way that makes it fun and exciting and cool. And that, and that basically leads to you know, that w- wild second episode with the Seven Arms plotline and everything. Mm-hmm. That's basically the big flashback setup that mm-hmm. kind of puts a whole bunch of pieces on the table that we were working with that the audience wasn't working with that was going to help us propel and tell, tell the story we wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. Well, and it also, that's an example. So that's, so there's an example of us trying to make something fit, having it all set and then realizing this, this doesn't work. It's not inevitable. We have to rewrite, we have to change. I can then give you an example of having something that you're aiming towards and it ends up working At, at a certain point soon thereafter, what snapped into focus was that, this was a two-hander between Erica and Pastor Stu. Like that yeah. was basically the story. And Erica is a complicated character. I don't think she's ultimately a monster, although only time will tell. But for the first season, at least, it was basically going to come down to a monster fight. You have a woman who's been so broken that she's a monster in her own way. And then you have a real monster in Pastor Stu. And it's just Who's going to win? And they're on a collision course. And that's... When Erica Rosebloom says jump, the world says how high. Right. And she never loses. And so Pastor Stu has picked the wrong fight. Finally. Uh, finally. And so he's going to get his come But So we know all that. We know that's how the last episode is going to end. 
we kind of have we have some ideas about how that's going to work, but then we have to find our way there. We have to f- make it feel inevitable. We have to explain all this stuff, lay all this pipe. Then you just begin to figure things out and lay them in. And so it's a, a lot of engineering. There's a lot of construction work that goes into it. But then there's wonderful surprises where the characters do. I mean, I don't want to be cheesy in the way I talk about it, but where they do, as you're writing them, develop hidden depths or Mm -hmm. and the thing that really set i think season two and then into season three and everything that we're doing now in in motion was the end of the christmas episode and i and i think we had some conception that this is where we were going but 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 we i just had this ended up writing a scene where erica's one pastor Stu has been banished she's she's gotten everything she wants and then Nobody wants to spend Christmas with her because they don't actually like her. And the only reason that she's gotten what she wants is because she made herself into a monster just like Pastor Stu. And she's she's only relied on her monster powers in order to defeat the other monster. But it turns out yeah, nobody wants to spend Christmas with a monster. And so you suddenly, I think we as authors suddenly have compassion like, oh, this isn't just Pastor Stu's broken adversary. This is someone who's really hurting and really sad and we'd like to see redeemed but we started in such a deep dark hole that it's going to take a lot of work for her to climb out of that and so how do we take the woman who is the pinterest mom mortification of pen paper over everything turn her son into a psychopath turn her daughter into jailbait turn her husband into an impotent wuss just kind of on the strength of her forceful compensation for her own childhood brokenness and trauma. Mm -hmm. How do we get from there to any kind of redemption? Right. And what is, again, I don't want to sound corny, but you start to ask yourself questions like what can that redemption really look like? What are going to be the drivers of that? What are, what are the drivers? What are the costs? And what is the beauty? And uh, what is good about this person? What is, let's, let's actually understand this woman, this character, and see what motivates her, why she's built these walls, what was good, what was self-preservation, what was, what, what's magnificent about everything that she's done, what's terrible. Like, let's just understand everything, and let's help our audience understand everything so that they can feel compassion for those people in their lives or so that they can understand them better themselves better if they ha- happen to be one or if they know one or if they're married to one or whatever. And so you just begin to ask all those questions and you begin to try and let the characters and who they are and what you've already set up drive things. You also have to decide how benevolent of a, a God to this little universe you want to be. And every world. Sometimes it feels like the world's conspiring against you. And sometimes it feels like everything's going in your favor. And sometimes it feels like you make your own destiny and. Right. So you begin to plot that all out and you have big picture ideas where it's going to go. And then things surprise you. I mean, think about really any kind of creative endeavor is that it is an interplay between what you plan and then what happens when you're actually even just writing a novel, even if it's just me, like all by myself, no one else is part of the creative process. I'm still going to have discovery. I'm still going to, well, I wrote, ended up writing that a lot different than I planned to write it, but that's exciting. And I like, oh, this character did a thing here. So, but what's Uh fun about doing this kind of thing, an audio 
drama is what we're doing or a movie or any kind of collaborative thing is it becomes about, oh, the guy who plays Bob, he's really good at this kind of thing. He, he And he's really bad at this kind of thing. Right. He's bad at this. He's good at that. We thought he was going to bring a lot of comic energy and he does. But man, when you give him a, a tearful scene, he nails it. So let's let's lean into that. Let's build around, and sometimes it can be frustrating, like you're building around what people can't do, but we've been blessed to work with some great performers, and what you can actually do is is be like, oh, this this person has an unexpected gift for for this kind of thing, and so mm-hmm. let's give them more of of that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, yeah. Your, your writing tends to, just like you would imagine with a screenplay, like first example that popped into my head, and this is a dopey one. But if Will Smith is originally cast as Neo, Mm -hmm. you're going to have a very different kind of matrix because you're going to be writing, changing, and directing the scene to play to the strengths of Will Smith. So Neo becomes the kind of Neo that can be embodied and performed successfully by Will Smith. Right. Keanu Reeves is very different than, and going to give you a very different performance and isn't you try to get a Will Smith performance out of Keanu Reeves and good luck, right? So right. it's just going to mm-hmm. be very different. And so each of these characters, you have ideas in your head and you cast them. And then as you work hand in hand with the person who is playing the character, it just becomes that sort of... To dance. Yeah. To- yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a process of making it all, all work and shaping it. And sometimes you end up rewriting the whole season because of what characters can give you that you didn't expect mm-hmm. and that you were afraid to go there because you didn't want to stretch them or what they can't give you that you thought you needed. And now you have to decide to go without. Yeah. Yeah. And the interplay between character and performer is interesting. Yeah. Because they, they limit each other or expand each other. What's the right word for that in different ways. Yeah. But also, <clears throat> Another thing just with juggling multiple characters and storylines is that you end up, you're like, well, we're going to do this with this storyline. And then you're like, this isn't as interesting as we thought. Like, this character was going to do all these things and have his own trajectory, but actually just feels like he's stealing time from what we actually care about. Mm-hmm. We didn't think that was going to happen. Yeah, How did that happen? You'd think that you'd know what you care about, but actually you have to do a lot of work to figure out what to actually i mean i don't know how to explain this because it sounds it's not intuitive like you'd think right. you'd think if any if you could a- sit down and answer any question and it's what interests me about this but it's actually a pretty hard question to answer sometimes i mean there are things obvious things that you know you're excited about but then you'll be excited about something yeah. else over here and then yeah you'll you'll start to write it and you'll be like well that's oh like our grief thing i mean we really, we really thought we were writing a grief episode uh-huh. and it turns out we didn't care about writing a grief episode. We didn't have anything to say about grief. <laughs> but we had a lot to say about the pastor stews of this world right. and a lot of personal experience mm-hmm. with them that we were ready to just like deal with. And then we thought we put Pastor Stu to rest. And when the idea was broached of bringing him back and we all got excited about it, we had to... St- I was like, oh, thank goodness, Pastor Stu. <laughs> yeah, okay, wait, wait, wait. Mm. This feels like cheesy. It feels forced. It feels whatever. No, it doesn't. It feels like what we care about, actually. And mm-hmm. it feels like we're not actually done with this part of the story. And it feels like there's more of this to tell because there's a spark in our eyes now <laughs> that mm-hmm. we just yeah. didn't have mm-hmm. when we were working the rest of this out. That's right. And so it's just like, okay, well, I guess 
we better lean into that and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Master Stu's done. This other character is going to be the villain in season two. How's he going to be the villain? Oh, like this or this? We don't care about this oh at all. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, if you think about some of the ideas we had for where season two was going to go, it's pretty it, hilarious. It did not right. go there. And they will never <laughs> see the light of day. <laughs> and thank Thank God for that. You want to come to you want to come to Evansville and buy us a drink. Maybe we'll tell you, but we're we're maybe. not. Maybe if you're like sworn to secrecy, it's not and, much fun. No, it's it just wouldn't have been good. <laughs> Why would you care? It just wouldn't have been good. <laughs> it would have been pretty. Boring. I mean, it's vaguely exciting to hear like, well, this could have sucked, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I mean, my favorite characters personally tend to be the ones that. I mean, A, I have to feel like I have some observation of who this person is or some understanding or some connection point. But it all, they also tend to be the people who I want to understand. I mean, Erica Rosebloom is my favorite character we've ever done. And I love her. And that's because she's helped me because I grew up with Erica Rosebloom's and I understood that there was a category of person who was an Erica Rosebloom. But I never understood who that was or what was motivating them or where they were coming from. They just seemed, what made them tick. They just seemed scary. And so being able to understand her and have compassion for her, it's actually helped me in real life with real women to understand and to interact with them. And, and Pastor Stu has been very helpful. And we've actually had pastors thank us for writing Pastor Stu b- before as arch and over the top. I think we maybe even talked about this on this very podcast. I don't remember. Even recently, yeah. maybe. But as, as over the top and crazy and satanic as Pastor Stu is, we've had people be like, yeah, I had a moment where some hot young thing was asking me for pastoral advice and I had Pastor Stu in my head and I realized I'm capable of that. And so I said, we, we can't have coffee together or whatever it is. I protected myself. And those things are good. I think if you're going to write, it's not that you start with theme and build outward But at some point midway through the process, a theme better emerge, something that you're actually interested in, something that you want to understand about yourself, about human nature, about people. You have to have something to say. Right. Right. You just have to have something to say. And that's like when we talk about on our movies podcast about some of these, how many movies that are made today, it's like, is there a point of view? Mm -hmm. Do they have a thing to say? Is there anything that they actually care about? Or are they just stringing together scenes and expecting us to pay money for it? Like, yes, Mission Impossible, hello. <laughs> <laughs> we love it. Yeah, yeah that's, well, that's why we I don't just, go back to Mission kidding. Impossible, though. I mean, that's the, I mean, we do talk about this. This is why I prefer, even though the stunts are worse and everything, it's why I prefer Daniel Craig's Bond for all its existential lameness and stuff. Because... They have a perspective on the character of James Bond. They have something that they want to say about this pop culture icon of the last 50 years mm-hmm. and something that they want to say about who he is. And that's just much more interesting to engage with than mm-hmm. Ethan Hunt. He's a guy that runs and dodges explosions and stuff like that. Like, Hangs on the side of airplanes. Yeah, that's Flies cool. his own helicopters. That's cool exactly once. I mean, Mission Impossible 4. He's really good at riding motorcycles. He's very good really at riding motorcycles. For a 60-year-old yeah. man. Yeah. With, and when he was 40, he could do it with white doves flying behind him. But he's lost <laughs> that ability. Those days are gone. <laughs> <laughs> so creative process. I just can't emphasize. I mean, the main point I want to make is you plan, you prepare, you outline, you get your story in as good a shape as you possibly, possibly can. And then you write a draft, and you're like, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. You got to get some perspective, like give it a little time to rest. And then you need as much help 
as you can get too. And I think, I'm sorry to interrupt no, no, the flow no. there. I think that if we look back at how we started versus how we work now, and we've gotten a lot more efficient. And a lot of that efficiency is we're not all trying to do all the same things. Right. Right. So at the beginning, we were all, we were breaking up the scenes. We were each writing scenes and then they had to be blended together. And so we were each a part of each aspect of the process. And now that's less true than it was. Well, the big time that we did that, what ended up happening is that one of us had to go through and just rewrite everything. So that was, it was cohesive. Like we all wrote scenes and it was good. I mean, it is, it is an okay way to work, but at the end of the day, yeah, we've done, I mean, we've done that a couple of different times, I think, but but yeah, it ends up making almost double work in that sense. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, now one person will write a draft and then we'll all look at it and other people can give notes and perspective and have things hit them cold, which is nice. Like, um, Mm -hmm. Oh, I haven't engaged. I knew the outline, but I haven't really engaged with this before. So yeah, which is basically my job at this point is to help break the episodes and figure out where we want to go and figure out structure, how things are going to work and maybe have some good lines or whatever that I come up with for somebody to say or payoffs or whatever. I'm decent at holding some of that in my head. Yeah. Well, and a lot of that is actually in the outlining because we really write a lot of these scenes in detail, even as we hash out the, and, and that's when Jake can be like, well, he should say this beautiful line or this should be mm-hmm. the closer or this should, you know, we should set this up over here so that, you know. Yeah. And, that, and that's about like, and that's about the level of my work on the front end. And then it usually goes to Nathan ends up writing most of the scenes, mm-hmm. the first draft of the script. Mm-hmm. And Ben's a part of that initial planning process too. And usually what, what, as much as anything he brings to the table, you know, he brings some of everything to the table, but he also always brings in that outside creative, crazy idea Mm -hmm. of the seven armed octopus or the other fun thing that we're going to throw into the mix. I don't know if that's, was that Nathan's? Seven no, arms? Seven Arms. Uh, seven Arms was uh, Seven Arms was like Jake well, stepped, stepped out of the room, and when he came back, you know, in, well, right. half the way it works is I step out of the room for one reason or another to take a phone call, and I come back, and now there's a Seven Armed Octopus. Yeah, <laughs> me and Ben like to riff and come up with crazy things, and I think a lot of the last season of Chip and Lance was just we we broadly outlined it with Jake, and then me and Ben just the you know hit the ball back and forth coming up with whatever including here fixing structure problems and mm. like this is a this concluding episode doesn't work we can't get there i mean one thing that's yeah. probably worth people knowing if they don't jake's full-time pastor of church of the king so yeah. he comes uh-huh. in for one day a week and can help us solve structure problems and then the rest of the week he's doing other things which is great me and ben both work more full-time days for warhorn so we have more time to mm-hmm. i mean i would love it's it it's in a lot of if i come in it's like okay let's work through this script together. And I'm often the one that's like, yeah, I don't believe that. Or oh, that just, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Or, and that's where the other big thing I'm that I you, you, you have got to have some thick skin and some humility if you're going to do this, particularly collaborative. I think it would be, if I can pat me and Ben on the shoulders, here's, here's an easy thing that we could do. Ah, well, Jake's not around for the process, so he doesn't understand how much work we put into building this thing he's just well guys that didn't really work so, yeah he shows up <laughs> after we've 
poured hours into this and just like, yeah, I don't get it. Yeah, I'm nope, just I don't believe take in a this. bucket nope, of your sweat and just throw it down the drain, which I guess is what you should do with our sweat. Yeah, you probably <laughs> so. And we're like, we sweat all that sweat. We bled all that blood. But no, you have to, I mean, there might be a time to say, well, Jake, actually, let us help you understand what we're doing so we can do it better. There's also time to just say, well, precisely because he doesn't have as much invested right now, he can have the perspective of the average listener or the person that's going to come to this cold and can help us get this in good shape. And you need that. You need as much of that as possible. You need to be able to see it from the point of view of the average person. You need to be able to see it from the point of view of the dumb person and decide how much you're going to make sure they understand it, which yeah. might not be all. <laughs> I mean, There's a place to say, no, nah, we're okay going over some people's heads. You need to also understand it from the point of view of the snob and of the critic and of the, you need to be able to bring all those kinds of additional perspectives to it. And then make your choices. Right. Right. Like so I'm, o- I'm okay if this goes over some people's heads. I'm okay if this is, do, do I want to be the favorite? Do I want this to be the favorite moment of some people or do I want it to be the okay moment for everybody? Those are the kinds of choices. The favorite moment of some people, the most hated moment of others right or the okayest Mm -hmm. moment for everyone right and then there's times to make all those decisions i think you are a hack if you don't make some choices that are well i just want to do it because i know three people and me will love it you should make some decisions like that you're also a different kind of hack a narcissistic artist hack if that those are the only choices you make like i don't care about the audience i don't care about regular people i just want to do something that I think is cool. That's just, that's just called being selfish. So that's why you need collaborators so that you can, I mean, even if you are a novelist, you need somebody at some point to read your novel and be like, well, that didn't make sense. Or I could see why that was entertaining to you, but it's not entertaining for me to actually read it. Or I see where you were dealing with your demons, but it turns out most people actually don't have those demons. So mm-hmm. you, you either, you either need to make sure that they understand where you're coming from and can connect it, or you need to cut this part out. I understand why you got bored with this and thought this was stupid, but actually it's hilarious and you just lived with it for too long. Yeah. And, or actually just because it seems obvious to you doesn't mean it's obvious to everybody. That was really insightful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the kinds of things that are so hard to self gauge. If you've been living with the material for a while, or if you've been deep into the material, it's, it's, it's really hard to have a perfect perspective on it. So so you need other people. So you write a big outline. You make it as good as you possibly can. You make it as well-constructed. You have setups. You have payoffs. You have character motivation. You have causality. You have button, therefore. You don't have and. You, 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 do not, you are not done with this outline until you think it's the best outline, until you think it's... Now, obviously, you're always working under time, and you have to mm-hmm. compromise. So I'm not actually saying this. I'm being a little hyperbolic. But hear me when I say you don't be... You don't put this outline away. You don't move to the next step until you think you've got a really solid outline. I've talked about this a thousand times on various podcasts, but what you do not want to do is make what I call the Woodhouse problem because Woodhouse, P.G. Woodhouse, the British comedian, comedic author said, where you always get yourself into trouble is when you're writing a scene and you think I'm such a genius that I can just do that scene and it'll be great. And so you don't actually put the legwork in of figuring out what makes the scene great, even if a non-genius writes it. And that's, that's what you want. You want an outline that's so good that even if the dialogue's bad, even if the execution's bad, the story is still so solid that it'll basically 
work. That's always the dream. You're not going to get there if you're working under a deadline, if you're working with real people's schedules, if you're working with real expectations, you're never going to actually be completely satisfied. But you want as much of it to just feel like, well, even if I did the bad version of this. People would still love it. People would still love it. It would still work. It It would still be okay. It would still get the job done. Yeah. Yeah. I would say some of our scripts, script outlines have felt more like that. There have been certain- And there are levels to that too, right? Because when you're working with an audio drama, there's the, the story's got to work no matter what. And then there's the, okay, well, we know the story works. Now we need the dialogue to work independent of a performance. Right. Right. Because there's all there's the, well, you know, this would work if we just got all of our actors to perform the heck out of it perfectly in the most genius way possible. Mm -hmm. Well, that's another place where you're, (laughs) where you're depending on, on just being a genius or having a genius in the room. And you want to take that out of the equation as much as you can too. So you want to write out everything so that it, just that every step along the way, you're trying to idiot-proof right. everything. So it can work if you have the world's worst actor mm-hmm. performing it. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I will confess that I do sometimes write some things, specifically with the character of Chip, where I'm just like, eh, that's not that great, but Ben's going to make that hilarious. Because Ben is so in tune with how to make that character funny that I can feed him garbage and he'll, <laughs> he'll make <laughs> it into gold. E- even then... Like what you're doing is you're leaning into, you have an idiot proof situation. Right. Right. Like if you try to idiot proof all your jokes, then you take away too much and you have great comedic actors. There's a balance there. You have to give them freedom to actually make. Right. Yeah. Well, and I want to, it's fun sometimes. It's like, yeah, if we need to have a backup, we can write something funny. But what we actually want to do is give Ben a challenge. Like here's a, you're funny at doing a, certain sort of thing. So here's like a certain sort of thing you could do and just see what he comes up with. And then if it sucks, we can always uh-huh, write something funny, write something funny. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you have to know your performers and know what you can throw at them and what they're good at and what they're bad at. And everybody has strengths and weaknesses and ways that they like to work and certain sorts of things that they feel happy and flattered to be asked to do and certain sort of things that they resent having to do like everybody's a different person and so you've got to you got to figure that out i mean i guess i will say there is a time and a place for not outlining as much but i think it's because you've outlined everything you can and then you're like well the only way i can even get into this scene i guess what i'm thinking of if people know our shows if they listen to the ville is like one of the best outlined episodes, in my humble opinion, is Brady Hawkins Day, which is this massive yep. situation with all these characters bouncing scenes. off of each other, interlocking scenes. Chip is flirting with Claire. Erica and Matt are having a meltdown. Ricky's hand. You know, there's all these different things happening, and it all builds to this. Uh, why are the Halloween, why is the Halloween stuff or Valentine's Day stuff all out? Right. Yeah. There's all these moving the Halloween parts. stuff out. Somebody's upset about this. Erica's got to do this. It's all got character purposes over here and over there. But actually, 
What we really want is for Chip to come flying in. <laughs> right. <laughs> on a drag Cupid. line, dressed as Cupid, and shooting Travis Bomb. Shooting arrows at our... <laughs> so you try... So you're... You know, you start with, like... Here's something funny I want Chip to do, and then you try and reverse engineer it so that it feels inevitable, so that people don't see where you're planting little pieces. Can I get away with this? Is it? Does it make sense that the school... Cupids aren't be, scary. Yeah. This girl's scared of Cupid for some reason, and that has to feel in and of itself like it's its own funny little beat. And that was more one of the more fun and one of the more successful, I think, versions of of that sort of thing. There's also been episodes like I think of the Thanksgiving episode, whatever that one's called. Can't remember. Can't either. Or My Dinner with Erica is probably the best example. My Dinner with Erica is an interesting example because there's a lot of interlocking parts and we've thoroughly outlined all like Ollie's gonna be having a conversation with his mom over here which is going to interact with Chip and Lance doing a thing over here. And it's all going to interact with the main thing, which is Erica and Ricky trying to work through towards some kinds of mending of their relationship. And then it's all going to fall to pieces because this and that and the third. And so we have all those things mapped out. But then you have the centerpiece, which is a conversation between Erica and Ricky. And that's a little harder to map out. I think in a perfect world, you do actually have it mapped out. But for something like that, sometimes... You just start writing it. You just it. start writing it. See and what the characters do. See what the characters do. Yeah. But it's controlled. It's you, If you're taking that kind of risk, you're controlling for it as much as possible by having everything around them as outlined and fenced in and in black and white. Like, I know I have to get to here, and I know that's what's coming, and I know that that's going to have its own intrinsic. And so because I've done all the legwork of, of building, again, a good engine, I can take it for a, a, a dangerous drive. I can see, like okay, what's going to happen? And sometimes you waste a bunch of time because it's like, well, I tried to get into that scene and write those two characters and I just, I don't know. I don't know how to make it work. They're just talking about nonsense and we're not getting any, in anywhere. But hopefully if you've done your homework and you've worked everything else out, you can leave yourself a little latitude and then be successful in filling in the details. But you just don't want to be proud and rely on yourself as much as possible. You don't want to be like, well, I'm just going to do the genius version. Well, and then even then you're going to miss out on all kinds of opportunities to lay in and set up other things because you're going to get wrapped up in, in your flow. And you're going to miss the fact that you were wanting and needing to plant all the symptoms of ovarian cancer in mm-hmm. some kind of internal knowledge that my time may be limited building up inside of Erica. Like that's another thing that you want to have there. Right. But you're not going to have that there and you're not going to find a way to work it in if you're just going to genius your way through it without some kind of pre-planning and outlining and structure that says, no, remember, we've got a bigger story we're telling and not just this one story here. So we have to be able to always step back and see that big picture. And then sometimes you you have that plan for that sort of thing to lay that sort of thing in. And it's like, well, the scene itself has to work and we can't force these details in. What I will find also, I I don't think you can ever plan too much though, because what I find is, uh, let's say that I'm giving a speech and let's say, or or let's say I'm going to be publicly performing or something like that. Let's say I want to be hilarious. What I do is I write the best jokes possible. Or let's say we're going into a podcast and I want the podcast to be funny. Maybe I have in mind, like, these are three punchlines we could work work towards. Inevitably, if I plan those three punchlines, I never use them. But because I have the confidence of knowing that they're there, 
I can riff and suddenly I'm 10 times funnier or I have a great outline for a talk and it's going to be profound. And because I know it's there, I can take risks and be calculated and be profound. Um, but, and, and, and a lot of times I'll end up throwing away the outline or throwing away the prep, but the trick is you then think, well, I didn't need the prep. And no, that's this prep is exactly what gave you the freedom, right? The prep is what gave you the freedom. And so it's the same thing with this kind of stuff. You may find yourself like suddenly something, the fuse is lit and it's, it, everything's burning hot and you're like, this is great. And it's just taking you to a place where you never knew you were going to get. And it's just so much more exciting and interesting and going in a, a great direction where these characters just feel like they're writing their own dialogue and stuff like that. That does happen. And you end up throwing away your outline, but it only happens because you have an outline. If you never had the outline mm-hmm. to start with, then you never would have gotten to the part where you felt the muse just take over and start working through your fingertips. Mm-hmm. So I know we say this all the time and people who are longtime listeners have heard us say it in a million places in a million ways, but you cannot be a lazy narcissist that relies on inspiration. If you're going to be an artist, I think you have to work hard, twice as hard as somebody that's going <laughs> to work on anything else because you're choosing a profession that is famous for its lazy drunken idiots and that attracts lazy drunken idiots so you better be prepared to prove that you're not a lazy drunken idiot by working twice as hard as people who aren't artists inspiration is for amateurs inspiration is for amateurs who said that is that Stephen Stephen King King, yeah it really is but that doesn't mean inspiration doesn't come it just, I mean, I, I wish it I could think of hard work. It comes through hard work. I, I wish I could think of a good example of this from our stuff off the top of my head. But I just know there's been a million times where we've beat our heads up against something again and, and put so much work into it. And then suddenly we're like, we should do this. And it sounds great. And we throw away all the work. And you're tempted at that point to be like, ah, why didn't we just come to the good idea first? But the only reason you ever got the good idea was because you beat your head and beat your head yeah, and, right. and yeah, went and in it's, a completely it's different It's tempting direction. to look at all that and say that, oh man, that was wasted work. But no, it wasn't. No, no. work is wasted in the creative process. It's all one step closer to realizing the thing that you're trying to create. And that's, you know, that's part of the frustration of it, but it's part of the beauty of it too. It's like, it all matters. It really does all matter. And like you said, the same is true in your sermon prep or anything like that, right? This is so much that you do. Mm-hmm. that you end up throwing away or not having any use for. And that was all just necessary to get to what you needed to do. Right. And it is such a high when the muses speak and you just it just takes off and it's great. But you really have to work towards it. And you have to have the faith to do the work when you're feeling tired or when you're feeling, you know, when you have writer's block. I just always think, you 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 you'd end up having more mind melds with the muses if you're able to to work through some of that stuff because you never really know when when the muse is going to speak you never really know when inspiration is going to strike but inspiration is not going to strike if you're just like well i have writer's block today so i'm not going to do anything but sometimes you have to do like four days of well this just felt completely mechanical and i wish that i was a bricklayer instead of a, a writer because writing sucks and my fingers are tired from typing and this is boring and stupid and no one's going to like it. And I think if you, if you get defeated by those days, then, then you, you're, you're not an artist. It's only the people that are able to actually, I mean, maybe there are a few people that are just geniuses and the muse always speaks, but I've never met one and I have my doubts. 
I think there are plenty of people that are geniuses and the muse spoke once mm-hmm. and then they sat around waiting for the muse it, and they just like, they did it. And they sat around waiting for the muse to speak again and it never happens. So they never did anything else. Yeah. Yep. And never learned how to cultivate the genius that they had into something that was actually more productive than their one off. Right. And by the way, none of what I just said means don't find the time of day that works for you. Don't find the coffee shop that works for you. I actually think that kind of stuff is important. I don't think that it's precious to, to try and find the environment and the circumstances that get your creative juices. What I'm not saying is you just need to be able to sit down and be a genius, but. But you do have to just be able to sit down and work hard in environments that are not ideal. Yeah. You're not always going to be able to get those stuff. You're not always going to feel it. You're just going to have bad days and. That's fine. That's part of that's that's part of the process. A lot of what you said goes for writing sermons too. Yeah, yeah. You just have to do it. You have to find a structure. You have to figure out your points, and you have to figure out your transitions in a sermon, or you can't communicate to people. They won't be able to follow what you're saying. And a lot of that sometimes that can feel like beating your head against the wall, mm-hmm. and you just have to beat your head for a while and well pray, of course, that God will help you. Yeah, and then sometimes, wow. This is great. I have ever, I know exactly what I want to say about this, and it's going to be so helpful. Uh, and then sometimes you do that, and you go and deliver it, and it is just as good as you thought. Sometimes you do that, and you go and deliver it, and it's total <laughs> crap. <laughs> sometimes you put a bunch of very mechanical work in, you go and deliver it, and everybody's like, yay, thank you so much. You said exactly what I... I mean, it's just, <laughs> this is just the process. You don't want to be romantic about it. So we write an outline. We spend a lot of time on it. I think we've already kind of talked about uh, there's, not, there's not much to say about the actual process of writing. It's just the rewriting is writing. If that's not already clear from what we've said, you, you write a draft, you look at it, you see what's what's good, what's bad. Usually it all sucks. And then you change it. But rewriting, for me at least, is much easier than writing. So my, my personal, I don't know if this works for everybody, but my personal principle is just always write the terrible version. Because as soon as you have the terrible version, be it a sermon, be it a script, be it a speech, be it anything, as soon as you have the terrible version, you can start turning the terrible version into the good version, which is a much easier process than just facing a horrifying blank page. I don't know if you guys agree, but I hate the blank page and I want to fill it fill it as quickly as possible. I think I've just sort of evolved in that direction, maybe in part under your influence or the influence of just how we've worked on this show. I've gone from much more of, I think, just act, 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 do, 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 and rewrite, fix, omit, generate, 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 delete mm-hmm. kind of guy. So I, and I think, I think, I think I'm with you on that. Yeah. I mean, I would, if I was going to, maybe we don't want to do this exercise. If I was going to characterize us, I'd say Ben's a tinkerer, like he, he does a little bit and then he does a little bit more and then he thinks about it and then he does a, does a pass. And like, I'd say I'm like a, ah, you gotta get it out of my head. Ah, it doesn't matter if it's crap. Let's just vomit. And then let's go back and let's intentionally, Oh, that's terrible. Like that, there's embarrassing. There's stuff that I write that I would never show to you guys who are the people even more than my wife who are get to see the, get the, get a vulnerable peek into my creative process. But there's stuff that's just so bad, but I'm just like, I hate that blank page. I want to conquer it. And then I want to go back. And then Jake, I think you, 
I think you like to be in the in the right coffee shop with the right music and have a little bit of inspiration and feel like you're going somewhere. Feel like it's something that you're excited about. Yeah, I um, think that I think hmm. that's true. I don't think that you're bound by that. Like, oh no, I don't feel inspired, so I'm just going to be a lazy bum. I don't. I'm, I'm not accusing you no, of that. Yeah, I will come up to the deadline and then elbow grease my way through. Right, but yeah, I, I think. Mm-hmm. You want to know why you're doing it and be able to answer that question for yourself. And by the time mm-hmm. I get down to sitting down and writing something, I tend to just have it all sort of mapped and figured. I know the why and I know the what and I know how I want it to go. And then it can just, its it's been pre-written, a lot of it. And then I go and then it's done. I rely on pre-processing. Mm-hmm. Like I rely on taking maybe taking lots of handwritten notes just get as many ideas as I can yeah, out. Yeah. Find find anything that's at all interesting to me, find stuff I don't understand, and then, and I find if I don't allow myself enough time, it can create a, like a, bottle like, neck like a time bottleneck mm-hmm. at the deadline, and I'm like, no, I'm staying up way too late. Stuff like that. So I try to learn my limits and work within them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the only thing we can get to say prescriptively is learn your limits and work well within them. Yeah. Don't rely on inspiration too much. But or, or other people's methods exactly. Right. Too much. Yeah, you just have to figure you out. Have to, you have to be willing to do the work of figuring out what works for you. Right. Yeah. And you have to, at the end of the day, I think speed in action, I think success favors speed in action, mm-hmm. doing, mm-hmm. over talking and planning and preparing. Mm-hmm. Then I think that's just a fact of life. Yeah. Although I think with a story, plotting it out, getting that, getting a good outline is doing, and that's what yeah, people yeah, need to yeah. understand. Well, yeah, there's there, there's a line of in which that's true for sermons too. I'm sure. Yeah, I, I think it's probably a line but, in which that's true for But there's some learning. line. Yeah, there's yeah. some balance. I mean, for me, the really fun part is cracking a story, like do it, doing the tinkering of what's the structure going to be, how it's going to work. That's that's a lot of fun, and then. I love fine tuning. I love going back and being like, well, that's a lame line. How can we make that punchy or memorable? How can we make that joke funny? Like that's just, that that's just crack to me. I love that process so much. The process that I don't like as much and try to rush through as quickly as possible just to get it over with is the, all right, I've got the outline. Now I just need to write the first draft that I can then go and improve. I mean, that's always the the place where I'm weakest, the place where I'm most impatient, the place where I'm like, all right, come on, come on, come on. And it's always nice if the muse will meet me there. Mm -hmm. She doesn't always, I'd say most of the time she doesn't, but if she wants to come along and be like, I'm just going to speak through you and make this fun and have these characters all come to life and make it good. Then that's really nice when that happens. And I can tell, I mean, if I listen to an old, if I listen to a Ville episode, I can't tell where the muse was speaking and where the, the muse wasn't. But you got to be able to do the work without the muse. And I don't know that you can tell. Like, I think your, some of your favorite stuff might have been engineered completely mechanically. Some of the stuff that you're like, oh, that seems perfunctory, may, may have felt like the muse was speaking. It's not always one-to-one, like, the best scenes are the most exciting. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. It just depends. So, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's, that's the process. We write a script. We read it out loud together. We go through, we fine tune any story points. We rewrite things like this isn't working. We do several passes. I mean, we, we're always working against deadlines and things like that, but we want to spend as much time making it as good as possible. So you, you have a draft that's pretty good and then you start looking for, well, is there anything else that can connect? Is there anything in act one that 
actually was a setup that I can pay off later? Or is there anything yeah. that happens in act five that I can just, I mean, we're, modern word processing is so great. People like just, I can just scroll up and write in <laughs> a setup for this. <laughs> right. The terrorist is like, we're only killing people with blue shirts. Hey, I can just scroll up and put George or Dave or whatever his name is in a blue shirt. This is an amazing story that we're coming Bob, up with. Right? The Bob, muse is definitely speaking. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. the terrorist hates blue shirts because, you know, his mom used to beat him and she wore a blue shirt. So I'm going to put like a blue shirted woman. You can start to do stuff like that. And then the most fun thing is, is, is just getting the, getting the dialogue just right, coming up with lines that are good and are fun and are funny. And I suppose we could do a whole episode about that. Some things, folks, you got to pay for my seminar. So, or maybe you just have to be a genius. <laughs> no, you, you, you want, you want, you want the tricks to the, the qu- a quick trick to dialogue. Here it is. People always want something and you always have to understand what your character wants and they, people don't say exactly what's on their mind they don't say exactly what they want but anytime someone opens their mouth to speak it's because they want something from the situation and so just know that and you'll be able to begin to write good dialogue that's that's the mechanic that's the foundation behind it is what do they want and and so you can write like it's sure is hot out there. And what he means is it's annoying. It's annoying that my wife keeps opening the screen door and going inside and outside and the air conditioning bill is going up. But if you start to understand the connection between those two things, text and subtext, I guess is another way to think about it. If you understand most people want something when they open their mouth, that's of course they do. We're driven by want. So, but they don't necessarily say what they want. They say other things. And you should be, begin to understand that. And you can begin to write dialogue that, and then listen to how people talk. Listen to the kinds of things people say, the kind of lies they tell themselves, the kind of lies that they tell other people, the way that they lie. I'd say 40% of all speech is lying. And so just listen to conversation. Go to the mall. I mean, if you really want to learn to write dialogue, just go be a people watcher somewhere. Or just listen to how people talk and you'll observe really fascinating things. So that's a quick dialogue primer and yeah. So then we write our script, then we record it. We've got a bunch of people. We sit around microphones. We speak into the microphones. We say things, we record it. We record it multiple different ways often. Yeah. We've been refining that process a lot and over the years. And I still think we could do better. I I actually have ideas about how we will do our next session like one thing that we never take the time to do is do a read through with the actors before we put them on mic and i think that that might actually be good what we're always afraid of is what if they just knock it out of the park the first time why don't we just record that but i think it might be nice to have the comfort of of reading it out loud with each other and talking through the beats and explaining to people like what's going on here or she's being sarcastic there or whatever i don't know i don't know but yeah, we usually do it a couple times, get good takes. But it is often the case, for for better or worse, that you are hearing our actors processing our scripts in real time. <laughs> yeah, which can be wonderful. Uh, the thing I understand about actors, I guess, is, is as long as we're talking about process, and I think this episode needs to be done soon, right, Jake? Yeah. The thing that I understand about actors is they all have different cooking times. And so some people... You don't want to tell them anything because you want them to discover it. And they'll be, if it's an emotional scene, they'll be really emotional. Some, some people are just great 
that way. Some people need to do it 20 times and then suddenly it's fully baked. And there's just one isn't better than the other, but you just have to know and figure out who you're working with. Some people need to talk it through. Like, why is she doing this? They need to understand the psychology. Some people just need to understand, say it faster, say it slower, or this line's sarcastic. It's just, some people are in, act internally. Some people act externally. Some people go from in out. Some people go out in. All different kinds of people, all different kinds of actors, all different kinds of performers. And you just have to know your people and know how to get the best out of them. And patience and empathy is going to win the day. So you record a bunch of takes and then you put them in your favorite audio software. You edit them all together. It's total crap and you hate it. And you go back and you re-record some more stuff and you rewrite some stuff then and you put it all together and you're like, well, this sucks. And then you rewrite five things and you have the people in again and they're irritated to have to come in again. You're like, no, 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 it's going to be great. We have this scene. Bob's buying cornflakes. And they're like, why does it matter? Who cares? No, no, no. It's genius. Okay, all right. Uh, I'm getting buying cornflakes, and you do that scene, and then Jake's uh, like midnight. Jake's like, well, what if Bob was actually buying brand flakes? Wouldn't that tie everything together? And you're like, Jake, the episode's <laughs> going out tomorrow. I don't know if we have time to do brand flakes, but, but yes, I'm right. <laughs> why didn't you think of that a month ago? Well, I only come in one day a week, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, okay, brand flakes, brand flakes. It is all right. Come back. You do the brand flakes. And you, you, you put it all together. You, you, you're always cutting. You're always looking for what you can omit. You're looking for places where you've either, hopefully by this time, you haven't underexplained everything. Hopefully you've gotten, you've worked out your story and your beats enough that everyone can understand who's listening to it, what's going on. But there's a lot of places where they'll actually be ahead of you, where you've actually been dumbed it down too much. And so you, you actually work on speeding it up work. Oh, that's obvious. or that's intuitive. We don't need that. And sometimes you'll lose great material that way, but you lose it because it's slowing things it's down. It's the way of the story. Yeah. Like this is, mm-hmm. this is a really fun scene, but we already know that about the character. We learned that three scenes ago. And so it's gone. It's toast. It's not driving things forward. And so you keep tinkering and you put it all together and you put it out to uh, the adoring public accolades, awards, money. You got to beat beautiful women off with a stick. It all happens for you. You're a star, baby. And that is the creative process. Yay. 100% accurate. 100% accurate. Mm -hmm. From first to last. But it all started because you took the time to put some elbow grease into your outline and into your revising and stuff like that. And you didn't get discouraged when it all felt like garbage so and because you had good taste to begin with knew what you were aiming at and because you had the humility to realize when you had not achieved that aim so anything else to say about the creative process gentlemen i don't think so not in this episode not in this well we'll come (laughs) back and revise it one o'clock this morning jake will be like ah we should have said such and such (laughs) we should have talked about the brand flakes oh crap we'll redo it Okay, Justice, go and do likewise. I hope that helps you. And if you want to help us, you go to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity. You make a donation. When a coin in the coffer clinks, happiness is linked. Some I don't know, Ben, what's our rhyme? What's our Tetzel rhyme for? Do we have one? No. Oh, we, 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 we have, we're this about is creative. We're exemplifying the creative process. <laughs> no.
But see, I just wrote some crap, and now Ben's going to revise it into genius. Uh, yeah, it'll take me like 15 minutes, but I'll do it. So just wait, listener. Be patient. <laughs> <laughs> when, uh, when, a, when a coin in the coffer. When a coin in Patreon lands. <laughs> we add more content to our brands. To our brands. There you go. Yeah. There you go. That's great. Genius. All right. Yeah, Patreon to come for his last sound of sanity. Until next time, stay sane. That's the wrong music. Sorry, folks. Still the wrong music. 